This is Penumbra Cast, The Other Scene. I'm Fernanda Negrete, director of the Center for the Study of Psychoanalysis and Culture at the University at Buffalo. Today, I am interviewing Anne-Emmanuel Berger in the Effects of the Artwork series. It is the fourth of the uh, Effects of the art Artwork, where I interview scholars who have some theoretical knowledge and experience of psychoanalysis, And uh, I am interviewing people whose investment in literature and art indicates to me, at least, the possibility of speech about their reaction to a work of literature or art that makes room for the subject of unconscious desire. As I've said in previous episodes, I am more interested in prompting the subject moved aesthetically by an artwork than in recording moments of mastery over a cultural object, even the modes of mastery that psychoanalytic theory and close reading can offer. In each episode, I invite a guest to bring a work of art or literature that had a profound and intimate impact on them to attempt an exploration of what this experience is about and what kinds of effects it had on them. Anne-Emmanuel Berger directed the Centre d'études féminines et de genre, the Center for Feminine and Gender Studies, at the University of Paris 8, Vincennes, from 2007 to 2014. Before then, she was a professor of French uh, in the Romance Studies Department at Cornell University for several decades, and she remains affiliated with them. Anne also founded Legs, the Laboratoire d'études de genre et de sexualité at CNRS Research Lab for Gender and Sexuality Studies, which she also directed between 2015 and 2021. Last fall, she held the prestigious Melodia E. Jones Endowed Chair at the University at Buffalo, following a line of distinguished names that include Michel Butor, Michel Foucault, Hélène Sixoud, Jacques Derrida, Louis Marin, Daniel Huillet, and many others. Welcome to Cast, Anne. Thank you very much, and I'm really de delighted and enthralled by your project of reaching out to your guests' uh, critical unconscious uh, through a special kind of analytic session, uh, uh, one where aesthetics uh, uh, occupies, as it were, the psychoanalyst chair. Oh, well, I'm excited. I'm so glad that you see it this way. Yeah, that's very promising. Um, so before we start, I want to mention some of your book's titles. So I have here Le Banquier de Rimbaud with Jean Vallon in 1992, Seine d'Aumune, Misère et Poésie au 19e siècle with Champion in 2004, and Le Grand Théâtre du Genre. Identité, Sexualité et Féminisme en Amérique, with Bélin in 2013, which was translated by Catherine Porter as The Queer Turn in Feminism, Identities, Sexualities, and the Theater of Gender, with Fordham University Press in 2013. And, uh, well, she is currently working on a very exciting project, to my mind, um, which is If I'm correct, is would you want to say the end of sexuality? Something of that's correct. I mean, it's a it's a very provocative title, and uh, what I'm trying to do is that I'm trying to reflect on what I see as uh, 
the epistemological, political, and cultural demise or exhaustion of sexuality as an epistemic paradigm, uh, as a key concept for the understanding of subjectivity and the biopolitical apparatus. And I'm interested um, uh, in the connection between uh, the current, for instance, neurobiologization and biomedicalization of sexuality, the turn or return to reality, uh, you know, between between codes uh, in both uh, continental uh, philosophy and literature, uh, the dismissal of psychoanalysis and its notion of the psyche, for me, all this is linked, uh, and the new understanding of trauma and the new politics of trauma. So that's, you know, what Are I'm you... trying to put together. <laughs> that's great. I'm very excited about this. It seems like important work that we need right now. I want to also mention some of the volumes that you have published. You have Lecture de la Différence Sexuelle with uh, Mara Negron. Uh, Algeria in Others' Languages, Genre et Postcolonialisme, Dialogues Transcontinentaux with Eleni Varikas, Déménagerie, Thinking of Animals, or Thinking Animals, After Derrida with Marta Segarra. Anne is the author of many articles, among which I mention only some of the most recent and uh, forthcoming and I think that they will be uh, relevant to the conversation we are about to have. So one is called Reading and Its Discontents, which appeared in the Oxford Literary Review this past fall in 2022. And uh, forthcoming is Voice and Sexuality in erotic, The Erotics of Deconstruction, edited by Lynn Turner. Uh, Edinburgh University Press 2024. Okay, so I want to say a little bit more about uh, what you have introduced into critical studies, I guess. So you have straddled and come to know in depth two academic environments that mutually influenced each other. Um, Anne's own work on questions of feminism, sexuality, deconstruction, literature, and psychoanalysis offers a uniquely insightful and rich perspective on these cross-cultural flows that result in different nuances and political stakes for theory. Anne's way of under undertaking close reading reveals to me an aesthetic sensibility at the core of her work, and I want to bring this out today in my conversation with her, which she has already pointed out it has this <laughs> analytic uh, ambition in a certain sense. I have invited you to share thoughts on a work of art or literature that truly moved you as a subject, whether or not you sought to read this work critically. And so is, is there such a work that you can identify in this way? And um, what is it? <laughs> and, and what, you know, did it have an aesthetic and even life-changing effect on you in some way? Well, what has come back to me vividly from, from the depths of oblivion, actually, is indeed a kind of primal scene of aesthetic encounter for me. And this is thanks to the conjunction of my attention to your question uh, with the ways in which uh, the constructions that have held uh, much of my adult life have been recently shattered, the ruins of which have laid bare forgotten emotions and scenes so my first properly aesthetic experience, if uh, uh, you know, if, if the properly aesthetic can be defined as such, one that was often repeated throughout my childhood, uh, thanks to the old record technology, 
uh, was the encounter uh, with the lyrical voice um, of the opera singer and magnificent tragedian Maria Callas, Maria Callas in French, a voice inseparable for me from the aria uh, she sang and I loved most, namely the famous uh, aria of Gluck's opera Orfeo ed Eurydice, first created in Italian in 1762, and then revisited and expanded in a French version of 1774. And it is the version in French of the aria in which Orpheus uh, mourns the definitive loss of Eurydice I listened to with grieving delight. Now, can, can we play a few notes of it? Yeah, this is so exciting. Here we go. You want to know uh, when I first encountered the work, I think, right? So it must have been uh, four or at most five, which means that it happened before I became a fluent uh, reader and writer. Oh, wow. Uh, My my mother had a record of it, uh, which she probably bought soon after Calas's recording of Arias from the relatively small French opera repertoire, uh, soon after then this uh, recording came out in 1961 under the direction uh, of the French conductor, Georges Prêtre. <laughs> wow, that's very precise, and it's beautiful that it came before reading for, right. properly. <laughs> wow, okay, this is great. So before, you know, we I want to go even more into this experience, but we could perhaps have a little bit of discussion about... Um, we're going to kind of take a turn to your more critical achievements like out of this very tender moment that you've just uh, begun to share with us but you know in January you organized with others a conference called qui a peur de la déconstruction who is afraid of deconstruction and it could give us a taste of uh, the differences between American and French cultures that you as I said you straddle regarding in particular the political stakes and nuances that you are so aware of. So how could you tell us how this, I think that this could be useful for uh, the audience to get to know, um, you know, some of like the way in which you're intervening a little bit better. Uh-huh. And uh, and I think it's also an, an important discussion. So how did this event come about? Yes. Yes. So I organized this event with uh, Isabelle Alfondari, a cross-disciplinary theorist like me and a psychoanalyst, <laughs> unlike me, uh, and Jacob Rogozinski, a philosopher, uh, both of whom are important players on the French intellectual scene today. 
we decided to organize this event uh, after a conference entitled Après la déconstruction, reconstruire les sciences et la culture, after deconstruction, rebuilding sciences and culture, a big program, was held uh, uh, in January 2022 in the most prestigious uh, academic setting in France, namely Le Grand Amphitheatre, the Grand Amphitheatre of the Sorbonne. The conference was introduced by the then Minister of National Education under the first Macron administration, Jean-Michel Blanquer, and received a lot of media attention. Uh, the conference aimed at denouncing an alleged conflation between academic pursuit and research on the one hand and political activism on the other. More pointedly, it incriminated deconstruction a word or notion which in the past decade has been used in France as a shorthand and catch-all scarecrow, first by politicians on the far right and right-hand side of the political spectrum, then by all kinds of politicians across the whole political spectrum, as well as by various intellectuals who define themselves as defenders of universal values, to denounce the supposedly various and nefarious attempts by a miscellaneous coalition of feminists, queer persons, anti-racist activists, and academics of the so-called deconstructive persuasion to destroy culture and common Western values. So to an American audience, I think this will bring back the memory of the beginning uh, of the 90s, when the conservative media launched a campaign against what was then called on your side of the Atlantic political correctness. Uh, at that time too, deconstruction and the name of Derrida were associated to such a cultural threat. The threat, uh, it seems to me, smacked of illegal intellectual immigration since it was supposedly smuggled in from France. And in a similar way, and obeying the same ideological and political logic, Deconstruction today in France is described as a foreign threat, as a barely French translation, deconstruction being uh, an idiolectic neologism supposedly imported from German of American wokeism. By, de by definition, all threats to the proper political body are deemed foreign, uh, and there has long been in France, uh, as you know, a strong uh, anti-American anti streak from both left and right. And I suspect that uh, deconstruction and therefore Derrida ha have been designated as the main culprits of the degeneration of French cultural values because they bear the signs of foreignness in multiple ways. The work of Derrida being commonly associated at once with Germany, Nietzsche and Heidegger, with America and the threat of American influence, and also of course, due to Derrida's own emergence from the colonial periphery with Algeria, a still frightening specter for the French political unconscious, one that continues to elicit lots of heinous projections and which sticks uh, to the name of Derrida as an original stigma, as it were, aggravated, of course, by the fact that he was also a Jew, uh, therefore all the more unplaceable, an unheimlich, or rather heimlich foreigner, neither a true insider nor a true outsider. 
Um, so in his introduction to, to the conference to the, um, that prompted our, our response, the Minister of Education called for the fabrication of an efficient French vaccine against the foreign virus of deconstruction, a vaccine uh, that could neutralize or eradicate claims and modes of thinking that were also explicitly linked to the spirit, the spectre, Derrida might say, of 1968. And indeed, under the name of deconstruction, it's actually the whole range of the iconic intellectual production of the 70s, uh, from Derrida to Foucault, from Deleuze to Sixou, from Lacan to Bourdieu, that came under fire. What, uh, what worried or even incensed us was that uh, the conference did exactly what it accused its ideological target uh, of doing, namely subordinating scientific pursuit to a very specific political agenda. And indeed, among the speakers invited at the conference was a far-right editorialist testifying to the fact that far-right thinking now holds a central sway on the public debate, and is welcomed by a supposedly democratic center-right government in the States, it would be identified as uh, center-left, uh, I'm sure. Uh, what also uh, worried us and uh, was that the call to immunize not only French public discourse, but the French academia against the viral attack uh, of deconstruction meant that academic freedom, which is actually inscribed as a legal right in the French code of education, le code de l'éducation, was trampled on and clearly under an unprecedented threat. And finally, that the rhetoric of viral contamination, very much, of course, on people's minds since uh, the COVID pandemic started, smacked of a very frightening brand of xenophobia, recalling the darkest hours of 20th century European history, since a virus can be said to be the very figure of the unwanted host of the foreign body insinuating itself in the proper body to invade it and corrupt it. So finally, we knew and could sense from the course attacks launched during that two-day event that most of the speakers uh, who spoke against deconstruction had, of course, never taken the time to engage in any serious way uh, with the works they were warning against and trying to bar from academic classrooms, something which strikes us both as an intellectual and an ethical fault. What is academia uh, uh, for if it is not a space for serious reading uh, and study, and if some works are banned or discredited without having been open. So for all these reasons, we felt it was urgent, not so much to mount a counterattack that would have been a replica of the event in its tone, logic, and rhetoric, but to engage in a serious, non-political, non-polemical rather, but political reflection uh, uh, on the legacy of deconstruction uh, and the extent to and the ways in which it had, it had indeed helped new areas of research, for instance, gender and queer studies, uh, critical race studies, what you call critical race studies in the States, but also renewed and more open forms of psychoanalysis gain in, intellectual strength, uh, subtlety, and therefore, I would say, scientific or epistemological relevance. We also felt, or perhaps we felt above all, that democracy was at stake. And we conceived uh, of our endeavor as part of an attempt to, to maintain open uh, the conditions of public debate 
which is inherent to the definition and history of democracy, hence of the possibility of democracy, of what Derrida has called the democracy to come. I'm glad that we are bringing attention to this thing in the United States because you are like hitting a lot of the marks that are also kind of like things that are symptomatically uh, showing up here in different spaces as well. You know, I, I had been thinking a little bit about, you know, measures of control and censorship that have uh, emerged at all levels of education here. So I had, as an example, Florida, where conservative ideologues are being installed for the Stop Woke Act and Don't Say Gay Acts. But I think that the way in which the line between left and right and the kinds of things that flare up cuts across is a little bit different in France and in the United States. So this helps to like complicate the our thinking about these kinds of problems. I don't know if you have uh, some thoughts on how this compares like what I've just mentioned to what happened at the mm-hmm. at the École Normale Supérieure with that original après la déconstruction mm-hmm. that generated your response like there is something of the right trying I mean you've said a lot already like you you're saying I, I can say a little more I mean the the Macron government is still a democratic government although I feel uh, my statement to be questionable after the disastrous and undemocratic handling of the proposed retirement reform by this administration I'm sure you've heard about it I I know it was uh yeah. talked about in the New York Times for instance since uh the Macron government wouldn't resort to the kind of measures that Ron DeSantis uh, is taking, uh, which amount to a frontal attack indeed on free expression, free access to knowledge, uh, uh, and free intellectual pursuits. But the fact, nonetheless, that it, the, the Macron government and its representative, uh, you know, uh, Blanquer, the Minister of Education, the fact that it lets itself be contaminated without realizing it by a rhetoric that was forged within within the precinct of the far right, a far right which, uh, as we know, and it's true in France and it's true in America, of course, has a very clear agenda for the conquest uh, of minds as well as of power. One of the, you know, one of the representatives today of France's far right, uh, Eric Zemmour, has named his own micro party Reconquête, Reconquest. So this fact is worrying, uh, especially when this happens in the field of education. Uh, now, as you know, the ideas presiding over the French notion of national education were elaborated by such intellectual and revolutionary luminaries as Condorcet, mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, one of those, um, s- something that you could call a public intellectual, maybe we can come back to, to that uh, issue uh, after that, uh, from the time of the French Revolution, uh, um, and who, who um, indeed was a kind of, uh, who, who laid down uh, uh, the theory, so to speak, of what was to become uh, a French uh, national education. Uh, and Condorcet, by the way, was also an ardent proponent of gender equality. Uh, so that national education, again, in France, has always been thought uh, as a way of fostering both equality and emancipation from various forms of ideological shackles, 
Hence also the traditional rivalry between the teacher and the priest or the teacher and the family. Mm. Uh, and that's why the fact that a serving minister of national education, a ministry which is still considered in France as one of the key ministries of any given administration, uh, the fact that such a minister could invite a, a miscellaneous crowd of scholars and opinion makers to actively do away with over 50 years of crucial intellectual work was particularly worrying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I had uh, a little bit of an opportunity to to peek into the conference that took place in January, thanks to uh, you know Zoom, because it was a hybrid event, and I noticed um, a real emphasis um, on the on the crucial difference between between destruction and deconstruction. That also seems relevant to what you are. Uh, highlighting right now in even in the titles of these extreme right um initiatives and what is at stake in deconstruction and reading so also in your recent podcast episode of avec philosophie in france culture you very interestingly pointed out that deconstruction is not just a mechanical process of finding the weak spots in an argument in order to destroy it so I liked that nuance and wanted to hear a little bit more about this for the Penumbra cast audience. Um, so I can't remember exactly what I, it's true, what I said in this respect on France Culture. Uh, the, the radio broadcast was not initially actually uh, recorded. It was a live broadcast. And perhaps the fact that one can have still a live broadcast on the subject of deconstruction today is still a hopeful sign. As you know, France Culture, one of the most prestigious French public radio channels, remains, it's true, a precious instrument for the democratization of intellectual debate. But to try and, and, uh, and, and address your question about what deconstruction is or rather is not, which is uh, a question that uh, 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 the participants in the conference I organized uh, and which took place last January, one year after the other uh, conference I was talking about, uh, so, so that we all tried to address, uh, we, 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 uh, the participants, uh, all in, insisted and rightly so on the fact that deconstruction is precisely not destruction. It isn't an equivalent or a strict translation, if there is ever such a thing, of the Heideggerian notion of destruction. It is perhaps closer to the Germanic notion, uh, one that Heidegger also uses of abbau. Uh, uh, in the specialized lexicon of architecture, deconstruction is always a double gesture of dismantling and rebuilding. Neither, of course, is deconstruction in the Derridian thought world, uh, if, if I may call it this way, uh, and as a mode of treating questions of texts, an idle rhetoricist game, the work of sophistry it has often been accused of being. Derrida himself has insisted countless times on the affirmative dimension of deconstruction. One deconstructs the law or the laws in order to affirm justice. One questions the foundations or assumptions of democracy in the name of or with the hope for more democracy. 
But Derrida, it's true, has also played at rendering the very notion of deconstruction ungraspable or rather uh, uncatchable by multiplying claims uh, such as deconstruction is justice or deconstruction is more than one language or uh, deconstruction is the opening of the future or deconstruction, it happens precisely in order to avoid the conceptual fixation of its meaning to prevent its substantialization, hence its monumentalization, as it were, as well as to prevent its turning into a new cliché or a doctrine, uh, you know, calling for obedient followers. Uh, what I could add um, is that deconstruction um, names or rather indexes a mode of questioning foundations, the foundations of our thought systems, of logic, of creeds, of institutions, uh, that makes these foundations shake. But there is a big pragmatic and also ethical difference, if I may say, between shaking or what Derrida calls destabilizing and destroying. Um, the deconstructive gesture, which can be likened uh, to some extent, as it has been to the Kantian gesture of questioning dogmas and doxa, of refusing to take in passively inherited knowledge, is also part and parcel of an experience, experience sorry, of responsibility, of one's responsibility toward responsibility, as it were. Um, in one of his last interviews by a French online media, Derrida said something which speaks to me and touches me uh, in all the senses of the verb. He said that one really starts to think only when one gives up one's assurances, one's certainties, when one, in other words, starts to shake, to quiver and shiver, when the ground under our feet starts to quake. In French, quand on se met à trembler et quand le sol tremble. In other words, um, the deconstructive shaking or destabilizing is not or shouldn't be one done from a position of assurance of unshakable and aggressive mastery. It is not a, a fight for the establishment of another order, be it a better order, in the name of manner and manner of that order or, you know, of any order. You can't destabilize deconstructively, as it were, if you are not yourself destabilized, shaken trembling, body and soul at risk and willing to take the risk to keep the opening, uh, the breach open. That's what Derrida calls uh, responsibility. That's beautiful. And I I like it so much. And I it makes me um, wonder about the degree to which that is actually put into practice. Like it seems like an excellent practice, but it doesn't seem to always happen <laughs> that's true but it's you know it's like justice you know you you <laughs> you have to dream about it and already the dream of it <laughs> begins something uh, gets you somewhere exactly it's true yeah yeah that's great because i mean like i think part of what is um like one of the elements that are playing in this kind of destabilizing movement is being attentive to and perhaps like cautious about too quickly finding stability like and and in that kind of cautiousness sometimes one can err too much to the side of not 
letting oneself like you're you're not destabilizing yourself anymore. I mean, I'm just kind of responding to what you are saying and thinking also in in relation to to this project of the aesthetic as a destabilizing um agent <laughs> or something like this. But I wanted to ask you a little bit uh, to say uh, something about where you situate deconstruction then with like we can already begin to see this, but with regard to concerns about wokeness, inclusivity, queerness, traditional conventions and constructions of sexuality on the other side and and of social sociality as well. So it's not simply like there is a very anti-traditionalist element to deconstruction as you're explaining but it's not simply well you're already saying like it's not simply going for some kind of affirmative ideology that but so so i'll let you answer like where anti-traditionalist i think i would complicate a little bit um you know that statement because Sure. Precisely, deconstruction is not destructive, so it doesn't try exactly to do away with tradition. Yeah. You know, it, it tries to to uh, to 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 uh, to pull in traditions uh, uh, threads uh, that may remain that precisely uh, uh, um, you know still make uh, something like the opening of a future possible. Uh, I would say. Uh, but to to go back to the core of your question, the, the the questioning by by Derrida of what he has called sex duality, and uh, his uh, relentless interrogation of binary logic of what such a logic leaves out or excludes, and his attention from his first to his last writings to the operations of neutralization of sexual difference, which of course shouldn't be ontologized and therefore should be written with an A. So I don't know if in English you in this case you say sexual difference. I don't know. Yeah, I think uh, so. <laughs> so his attempt to show that the logic of opposition is always at the service of a symbolic hierarchy with real and devastating effects in the so-called real world, all this obviously comes to mind. But I would like to add, uh, because this is all well known, two small remarks. One is that Derrida was particularly fond of the language and lexicon of what you call and one calls today uh, wokeness. Uh, think of his constant calls for a subtle yet relentless form of vigilance. That's one of his words, uh, which literally means to be awake, to stay awake against uh, the slumber of thought and the blindness to blatant injustices. And to all the work he has done on the notion of they in French, which means wake, which he also invites us to think as a way of not letting the dead down, not letting bygones be bygones, as a way of agreeing to letting ourselves be haunted uh, by the specters of the wounded. On the other hand, uh, I, I believe the, the vocabulary of inclusiveness, I think you, you mentioned concerns about wokeness, inclusivity, queerness, etc. So the vocabulary of inclusiveness, inclusiveness, which wasn't current in his time, uh, I, I believe it would come under his deconstructive scrutiny for its uh, topological oversimplification, as it seems to imply a clear distinction between in and out, uh, as it leaves in place the opposition between inside and outside, or between insiders and outsiders, 
and points toward a rather naive ideal of completeness and togetherness. So, absolutely. I guess there's like a mourning that's crucial in in Derrida as you are that you are connecting to wake, right? Wake they, and ah, uh, that that does indeed complicate things. So I wanted to to draw attention to the fact that uh, the University of uh, Paris 8, where the Centre d'études féminines et de genre uh, still exists, was inaugurated in 1968 uh, as a space for radical thought in which some of the key names that have shaped what we know in the United States uh, as the theoretical humanities were, you know, participating fully. So there's Michel Foucault, Hélène Sixouf, uh, Gilles Deleuze, Jacques Derrida, Lucie Rigaray. They all participated in the development of this institution. Um, and you worked to continue the legacy of this huge effort following Hélène Sixouf and directing the Centre, which was the only one of its kind in France for a long time, and I don't know if even in Europe. Um, so what does this institutional labor change for young people in France? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so Vincennes, uh, which was called when it was founded the Centre Experimental de Vincennes, the experimental center of Vincennes, and which opened actually in 1969, so in the wake uh, of 68, uh, was indeed uh, conceived as a place for experimental thinking and learning for unheard of cross-disciplinary endeavors, a place where one experienced also a form of radical democracy since it was open to all with no conditions of selection or diploma. And since the faculty that came to Vincennes was intent, it's true, on doing away with old and very entrenched forms of hierarchies, what one calls le mandarina within the academic institution, between faculty members uh, according to their ranks, and also, of course, between faculty and students. And for a long time, Vincennes also had privileged relations, if one may say, with Africa, attract attracting more students from sub-Saharan Africa and from the Maghreb than any other institution of higher learning in France, perhaps even in the whole of Europe. I believe so. Uh, at Vincennes, new fields of learning and research emerged. Uh, it had the first department of cinema, actually, the first department of psychoanalysis, of Lacanian psychoanalysis, the first department of educational sciences, the first program in geopolitics, the first departments of photography, of dance, of art and technology, and indeed the first women's studies center in France. And it also had a, a, a department of computer sciences avant la lettre uh, that was cutting edge, actually. And the people who studied there between 1969 and 1980, when Vincennes was shut down and moved or relocated to Saint-Denis by the government uh, uh, in an attempt to, to, <laughs> to destroy it or, or to marginalize it further, um, so the, the, the people who studied there indeed have been profoundly marked uh, uh, by this experience. Uh, my, I myself was a student at Vincennes just before it was moved uh, uh, to uh, Saint-Denis uh, between uh, 1976 and 1980. So now the University of Vincennes, of Vincennes à Saint-Denis, as it is called now, uh, is struggling against the forces of normalization. 
Um, and the faculty, it's true, that teaches uh, there does not necessarily adhere to its founding spirit. But the, the university is still haunted uh, by the specters of its beginnings. And some things uh, indeed are enduring. Uh, the university has had recent success uh, with its interdisciplinary gender studies program and research unit. Uh, and also, for instance, with its new, uh, newly launched um, creative writing program, something which is new also in, Fran in the French academic landscape, uh, and which has been very uh, successful, for instance, in helping new young writers of Maghrebian descent or queer persuasion uh, to find a voice and a publishing house. Uh, paradoxically, because of the stigma of marginality and leftism still attached to it, Vincennes at Saint-Denis continues to attract students who still believe in a pursuit of knowledge and critical thinking that are not fully instrumental or attuned to the labor market. But more and more, I have to say, uh, Vincennes belongs to a kind of history, I would say even a mythical history, as uh, is attested by the numerous books that continue to be written about it and by the movies made about it. Um, up to now, the, the movies were basically documentaries. I saw a number of them. I actually, you know, helped produce a few uh, as well when we celebrated uh, the 40th anniversary of the Center for um, uh, Women's and Gender Studies. Um, so the, the documentaries, of course, were based on archival footage and interviews with the um, aging players of its beginnings, but I was just told actually that a fiction movie uh, about it is in the making. Wow. <laughs> Which means, you know, it, uh, on, in, in one way, uh, it, it's good because it means it's, it stirs the imagination. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it, it, uh, it, maybe it is also because it, uh, it looks or sounds more and more like a fiction <laughs> with regard to today's realities. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. One thing I wanted to stress in in asking you this question was just the degree to which the motivation to to go study there was not, you know, initiated by the need to to get a job. But and yet, it's not like that. Only uh, the privileged few could uh, go enjoy you know learning about the arts and the and uh having a life of the mind it's more that there was like um just like something else that was really more important that was linked to a consciousness of class of course and a consciousness of the many things that are shaping our world and making it uh difficult to live in but but yeah there was like a very there was such an energy that, yes, sometimes feels like a fiction. And I'm asking this question, obviously, also from the perspective of uh, working at a university as well in this country where it seems, in the United States, where it seems so um, like hard to even help young people imagine that kind of uh, drive, like unhinged from you need to secure your life and like your livelihood and have a just continue on like in the cultural reproduction well there was a time and that was true for a long time also uh for the you know the the working class the the labor class where where um the 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 idea of uh 
um, of, of, of work and emancipation or the idea of, of going through life and, and climbing the ladder uh, uh, were in, 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 inseparable uh, from a kind of cultural ideal, uh, from, from the thirst for culture. Wow. Uh, and, and it's true that this, uh, this, you know, probably tends to disappear and, uh, and, and, and we, which means that, um, uh, it was it, it it was it's a very Marxist idea actually. There, there was a first for for life. Uh, uh, it's interesting that one has two different uh, words in English: uh, uh, living life, and and on the other hand, livelihood, which as you as you said, uh, mainly refers to now uh, uh, the the ability to you know to to feed yourself and make ends meet. Um, so. Um, um, you know, one just hopes that uh, um, the uh, the first for life will will endure or will be rekindled one way or the other. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So on that note, let's turn to psychoanalysis a bit. Um, and I wanted to mention how this last uh, fall, while you were here in, in Buffalo during your tenure of the Melodia E. Jones Chair. Uh, you with me as director of the Center for the Study of Psychoanalysis and Culture, we organized an international symposium with scholars, psychoanalysts, and artists called Full Speech in the Present. Uh, it allowed us to discuss the relevance of psychoanalysis, especially after Lacan, since full speech, which is his term, la parole pleine, in today's critical and clinical contexts. Um, specifically, we considered the ways in which race, queer theory, transgender, and globalization in these first decades of the 21st century introduce questions that are possibly new or that return to key problems raised by feminism and by women within psychoanalysis from the outset. Your conference in Paris um, with deconstruction at its center in the title even, uh, featured several psychoanalytic theorists and even practicing analysts, as you already mentioned, um, in addition to speakers who are more specifically situated in deconstruction. So how would you explain the relevance of psychoanalysis to deconstruction? Yeah. So, so indeed, when we organized uh, this conference on the legacy or the interruption of legacy of deconstruction today, we immediately thought of another field that is coming under attack from various fronts, both scientific and institutional, in France and elsewhere, namely psychoanalysis. And we did invite uh, a number of people who are, as I was saying, indeed, uh, at once academics, practicing psychoanalysts, uh, and who work uh, within an intellectual framework oftentimes at the crossroad of literature, philosophy, and aesthetics, that has maintained a connection or a dialogue with what the name of deconstruction uh, has come to index today in France. A number of queer psychoanalysts in particular who are questioning the institutional workings of psychoanalysis or its conceptual blind spots and sites of resistance to contemporary changes are, uh, seems to me, a natural allies, as it were, of the deconstructive wake, uh, at least in France. And for me, I have to say, Freud was the first true deconstructor, uh, much more than Heidegger or uh, and even Lacan, it's me speaking, and in a way more frontally uh, than Nietzsche. 
uh, even though his uh, his language was still couched, as we know, in binary rhetoric, he did uh, break apart uh, uh, the opposition the opposition between normality and pathology, between heterosexuality and homosexuality, between activity and passivity, between body and soul, zelu, and in many ways between life and death. Uh, he insisted uh, uh, on the psychic work of deferment and substitution, which uh, provides, it seems to me, a kind of template for the work of difference, difference, and the supplement. So in this way also, he questioned, albeit in non-philosophical ways, any notion of self-identity and unity. And he did all this, uh, and that uh, I want to stress that, by making room for fiction, not as the opposite of truth, but as a path, perhaps uh, the only path toward another kind of truth, the subjective truth that emerges in fantasy and the dream work, but also more collective forms of truth and knowledge that can help human beings be um, a little less blind uh, to what they do to others and to themselves. Freud uh, uh, wasn't afraid to say that fiction had a heuristic function in the pursuit of knowledge, and that the drives, remember, you know, he ends the, the conference uh, on femininity by saying, well, if you want to, to, to pursue the question and if you want to know more, address yourself to, to biologists, but also to poets. Hmm? So, um, so, 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 so again, Freud, um, Freud said several times that fiction had a heuristic function in, in the pursuit of knowledge and that the drives, for instance, were mythical entities. It's his formula as, of course, is the libido, something that is, as we know, held against him and against psychoanalysis by, for instance, neuroscientists and other brands of positivist uh, psychologists. Uh, so yes, uh, the Freudian erotic body is in many ways a mythical construction, one that is superimposed, to use Catherine Malabou's formula, to the mere physiological body, one that leads uh, to the carving out within the brain of a strange uh, supplementary space for this mythical apparatus called the psyche, which I'm tempted to write uh, with a capital P <laughs> to gesture toward the female uh, or feminine character of the myth, uh, the fable recounted by Apulé or Ovid, in which a psyche is awakened uh, uh, by Eros but loses it or him or them when she attempts to look Eros in the face, just as Orpheus did with Eurydice. Oh, wow. And yet the psyche uh, or, or the psychical works, uh, it is at work. Uh, it, it makes itself be felt and known as any subject knows, uh, at least unconsciously. So, and, so, and to say things differently, um, Derrida and Freud, uh, uh, share a common uh, interest in inscriptions, uh, in traces, uh, again, in supplements that bypass uh, or undermine the distinction between the material or physiological and the ideational, the phantasmatic, uh, between the native uh, and uh, the prosthetic, which uh, it seems to me brings us to your next question. <laughs> Yes, it does. And uh, I want to say this question came to me from your uh, recent articles, which are so much about uh, reading, writing, and eros. <laughs> so my question is, 
Um, whether there's something in reading and writing that is precisely about what psychoanalysis is attuned to and concerned with, and I had in mind as I, you know, arrows, but also just desire more, um, well, like more fundamentally or jouissance, repression, the death drive, which, which you're already, um, pointing to as a, a myth, like part of a mythical, um, uh, construction etc so i'm curious to hear yes. so so uh, i was just as i was just recalling freud famously said of course that literature was the royal road for psychoanalysis um and and everything i've just said about uh, the role and place of fiction of fabrication that is also about the psychic work of course of displacement and replacement points toward a certain proximity of psychoanalysis with the double activity of writing and reading, two activities which at the psychic level, and one could say at the libidinal level, uh, cannot really be distinguished from one another and are indeed concerned uh, with the sources, uh, the production, and if I may say, the psychic function of a certain kind of pleasure, even and possibly most of all a painful pleasure, a pleasure full of its uh, alleged contrary pain. Um, but here we're talking, of course, about reading and writing as uh, this double-coined activity is or used to be understood uh, in the literary field, and perhaps it's not the case anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is interesting. I'm, I'm thinking about the royal road to the unconscious. I think it's the dream that's the royal road to the unconscious, but maybe there's something very... Yeah, but maybe there's something there, like in fact, like something very literary about dream. As yeah, I think I think, he, I think somewhere, but may, I may be wrong. I think somewhere he does uh, he does mention literature uh, as as a privileged path. So so maybe maybe yeah. the maybe the the very literal expression, the royal uh, road, uh, is indeed. Uh, maybe he pronounced it in the context of his work uh, uh, of dream. But so anyway. <laughs> Yeah, no, but there's also like creative uh, writers and daydreaming. And so, so, so like this, right. this is like intimately related. Absolutely. Right. Um, yeah. So in, in relation still to reading and writing, I'm curious to hear what you think about some of the uh, significant changes that are happening right now with regard to reading and writing. And in part because of the spread of technologies that don't really favor close reading as a as a methodology or reading extensively, like who sits down and reads Rousseau's Confessions right now <laughs> when they when they have to when they even check to 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 know before they commit to a little article how long it's going to be in. You get the this is a two minute read or this is a ten minute read. <laughs> Uh, or writing extensively as well to transmit one's thoughts, like even in publishing uh, academically, there's uh, an inclination or um, a promotion of shorter books. Than right. Absolutely. Yeah. Which, of course, you know, is a question of market also and, uh, and again of, uh, <clears throat> of economy, etc. But um, so, so yes, to 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 try and answer your question about the changes in, in reading and writing. So, and of course, I'm very much aware that everything I've just said 
regarding fiction, writing, and reading may sound like old and indeed self-deceptive news, uh, self-deceptive news to many. Um, so I, I do not want to go over the various arguments I've tried to make in in uh, this uh, little essay called "Reading and its, and its Discontents" uh, that you mentioned, but I'll say this. So I am, like you, a professional reader. I've been trained to read and to teach others to read. Uh, note, actually, that when one uses the verb to read and also the verb to write without any further qualifications, it always refers to the activity of reading and writing something akin uh, to what we call literature, as if reading literature and writing something that can be recognized as literature were the paramount experiences of reading and writing, as if the literary activity considered uh, either from the angle of writing or from the side uh, of reading entered paradigmatically in the definition of reading and writing, at least so far. Um, to become a, a professional reader, of course, one has to have been, most of the time at least, an avid child reader. And I was lucky to have been introduced to the pleasures of reading very early on. What an early reader discovers, uh, uh, indeed, is that reading can be a strong form of enjoyment, uh, is actually a path, one of the most successful paths to enjoyment. That's why reading, like dreaming, takes place by excellence in or on one's bed uh, <laughs> before it becomes a desk activity. Um, and when you experience this kind of pleasure, or any pleasure for that matter, you seek to repeat uh, the experience, oftentimes compulsively. So now what has happened uh, is that uh, the kind of pleasure and psychic or psychical experiences reading, that is reading literature, um, has afforded um, uh, uh, to uh, uh, countless uh, uh, generations is not linked anymore in any privileged way to the discovery of literature and the book medium, and therefore to what we are used to call writing and reading. Uh, I think anybody who has any kind of sustained relation with younger generations, our students, our children, I think I think you have a, a child who reads, but that becomes, you know, an exception. Uh, so anybody who has uh, any kind of sustained relations with the younger generations can see that. Now, uh, it's true that we are and will always be fictionalizing creatures uh, since fiction making is inherent uh, in the human mode of being and living. All societies, all cultures, uh, whether macrocultures or microcultures, have their mythologies. But not all societies, not all cultures have literature, have had it or will have it. Uh, uh, in order for, for something like literature to develop and be part of one's cultural mode of relating um, to oneself and to others, uh, first you have to have literacy, of course, uh, and then both uh, the cultural and material conditions for the transmission of something like the urge to read literature have to be in place. Uh, and today, all of these are threatened uh, for a number of reasons some of which uh, having obviously to do, as you were uh, saying, with the way new technologies have fostered, indeed imposed, through the workings of the global capitalist market, new forms of prosthetic aids to the vital urge to fantasize and dream our lives, new ways of relating to oneself and to others. 
It's a strange coincidence to me that books, or at least bookishness, birds and insects, are disappearing um, fast at the same moment uh, from the surface of the earth. It gives, a, um, it seems to me, an additional poignancy and urgency to our predicament and our pursuit as scholars in literature. So it's true I've been recently interested in a number of ways in which reading, uh, that is to say reading literature again, is being hindered, inhibited, bypassed, or dismissed today, including and symptomatically so in the very institutions that are supposed to cultivate this art, this liberal art, namely uh, the institutions of education. And I've also tried to reflect on the ways uh, in which our fellow professional readers um, have dealt with the situation, have accommodated themselves to it. Indeed, for some have embraced it, for instance, by advocating critical and methodological approaches to texts and to reading that tend uh, to de-subjectify uh, de uh, uh, the encounter with the text uh, to counter the what you could call the transferential motions that are triggered uh, by reading this or that work. Wow, that's a really beautiful answer. I, I really I appreciate. It. I wish we could stay there for <laughs> for a very long time because you've said so much that's very rich. I like that you're stressing that there's a transferential dimension to to reading that is also being denied and. I mean, I don't know the exactly the history of that, but I do encounter it as something linked to academic uh, conventions often. Since you have been so generously uh, stressing the aesthetic dimension of of reading, of literature, and of what is worth preserving there, I would like to come back to your aesthetic experience with. Um, the aria that we played at the beginning by Gluck, the J'ai perdu mon You know, when I first uh, heard of your question about, you know, uh, a major aesthetic uh, experience or encounter, I, I have to say that I first uh, started checking my museological memory feverishly, you know, <laughs> because, I, I, because as an adolescent and a young adult, I was an ardent museum uh, and exhibition goer. Uh, and I also have very strong memories, which came back to me on the occasion of your question, of some of the greatest forms of Western experimental theater I had the privilege to attend uh, in the 70s. So I was still, you know, a child or <laughs> uh, from the living theater to the Théâtre du Soleil, from Luca Ronconi, who was a, a marvelous uh, uh, Italian uh, director, theater director, from Luca Ronconi's Orlando Furioso to Peter Brook's The Twelfth Night, etc. But, but I couldn't elect one specific work among the wealth of aesthetic coup de coeur or even trances I experienced uh, during that period. Uh, uh, you know, I loved Giovanni Bellini and Jericho, uh, Casimir Malevich and Pierre Bonnard, uh, the Bauhaus uh, architectural inventions uh, and the plastic work of the Cobra group, namely Pierre Aleshinsky, uh, Asger John and Karel Appel, all touching a different chord in me. But the anamnesic return to me and in me of Orpheus's lament, uh, I have to say, settled the matter. Wow. So, 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 um, 
So hearing uh, Maria Callas, uh, as I know her, <laughs> Maria Callas, uh, had made me want to become an opera singer. <laughs> That's the first thing I ever wanted to do or become in life. Uh, and I used to hum or sing a number of my favorite uh, arias throughout my adolescence and young adulthood. So as you know, I didn't become an opera singer. I did take some singing lessons, but uh, even though I had learned uh, how to read musical scores uh, at a younger age, I had forgotten almost all of, of that skill as a young adult and somehow couldn't bring myself to start again. But I became a specialist of lyric poetry. Uh, in my first uh, academic incarnation. And I never lost the thread uh, uh, or chord uh, of Orpheus. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was about 10, I, I saw the movie Orfeo Negro by Marcel Camus. It was a Franco-Brazilian production, yeah. uh, which made a huge impression on me. And, and I haven't seen it again uh, ever since. So and the movie transposes, I don't know if you've seen it, the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, uh, in the then contemporary setting of Rio de Janeiro during the carnival. Orfeo mm -hmm. is black, Eurydice is a young peasant, and death lurks everywhere uh, and runs after them in the guise of a young, agile man dressed in black with a white skeleton drawn on his tight suit, mm -hmm. his face entirely masked. And throughout the movie, I felt terror and sorrow and somehow hoped that the ending would belie the myth, which of course it didn't. But to go back to the aria, uh, um, it taught me that, uh, first of all, that Orpheus could be a woman or a woman Orpheus, uh, because love, uh, loss, and grief uh, reduced or rather elevated as they are to their purest and more most primal expression by music, know uh, no gender and have no gender. Uh, indeed, I learned uh, later that Gluck's Orpheus has been perhaps the most gender-fluid role of the Western classical opera repertoire, repertoire. It has been sung by male castratos, countertenors, tenors, and even male sopranos. I actually heard one, a male soprano, in a production given at the Glimmerglass Opera in Cooperstown some two decades ago. And it has been sung by female altos, mezzo-sopranos, and even sopranos. Callas was, was a mezzo-soprano with the range of a soprano. Um, uh, Orpheus's lament um, allowed me to get acquainted with grief, I think, at a time when I was not yet conscious of having gone through that experience in the so-called real life. In this sense also, it taught me, obviously in non-theoretical and uh, non-reflexive terms at the time, that the sublimation of the drives, of drives, uh, of motions and affects afforded by the aesthetic experience is not a sublation. Grief is not conquered or overcome. It is even deepened in a way um, as the song lets it out uh, and magnifies it in the process of its artistic rendering. And then when, when you look at a picture, unless you are yourself a visual artist, you can't reproduce it, but music allows you to sing along. That's important, uh, literally to incorporate and therefore embody what you hear. Uh, finally, to, to say a last thing about this, I, I think uh, it started to acquaint me uh, with the complex workings and wonders of repetition. 
Uh, opera singing, as we know, is based on repetition, both the repetition of melody uh, uh, and the repetition of the words with slight variations. In this sense, uh, it seems to me it is close to child play uh, and to childish or rather childlike modes of reading. Uh, children and the children, of course, we were, we once were, often want the same story to be read to them over and over again, encore. Mm. Um, and repetition uh, can turn the unbearable into a strange kind of pleasure. There is a pleasure in the very endurance of grief. It, it allows one to familiarize oneself with it, a familiarization which is not a domestication. And so I've wondered uh, on this occasion and the occasion of your questions, uh, if my attraction to, to thinkers and intellectual explorers such as Freud, Nietzsche or Derrida also had to do perhaps with the fact that there are thinkers of repetition, that is of difference in repetition, each in their own way. On the other hand, I have to confess that Deleuze, who has, of course, obviously also explored the issue, has never triggered in me the strong sense of affinity I have felt reading the former. Um, now, Calas pronounced French very clearly. We, we've heard it in the, in the few uh, uh, notes that you played earlier. Uh, and I had no problem singing in unison, J'ai perdu mon horridis, rien n'égale mon malheur. I won't do it because I'm afraid that my voice won't carry, <laughs> even the other day, even though the other day I sung it and it came out quite well. Good. <laughs> Part of the aria even consists simply in crying out the name Eurydice, 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 uh, in calling for a callback, réponds-moi, réponds-moi, you know, uh, Orpheus Maria keeps repeating. And that also taught me something, not only, of course, about the malheur and the uh, devastating effects of unanswered address, but about the essence and power of all address of the primary role of address both in and as love and in and as language before and beyond uh, language's informational or referential function. Uh, I think you can see the traces of this experience uh, and what it taught me in, in many places uh, in my work. Wow. This is, yeah, this is a true, a, a genuine primal scene <laughs> from what everything you have unpacked. Um, uh, in your, you know, from this particular choice and from uh, the genre of opera, from this particular opera, from how gender works in it, uh, and what's happening to this per this one, I had not, I did not know that about this aria. I did know the aria, but I had never really paid attention to the fact that it's Orpheus singing. I love Maria Callas also, and. Uh, yeah, and I had heard this many times without thinking it's Orpheus speaking. <laughs> so, I mean, it's not even the only thing that's remarkable about your uh, your words just now. Um, I wanted to stress one line from the aria to um, just to highlight what you're saying, that there's je succombe à ma douleur. Yeah. So there's you know, an enjoyment, but also like a, a full a full immersion in in affect that that is happening in the voice, right. <laughs> and that happens when we sing along or when we sing. Uh, right. 
And that is what's happening here too. But then that how this pain or how this feeling is related to the absence of a response uh-huh. uh, from Eurydice who is being called. So that's just uh, really gorgeous <laughs> and very touching. Um, Shall we play a few more notes, maybe, for our editors? <laughs> let's do that. So regarding, in fact, um, the what you were saying about the repetition and playfulness there, what, when I was listening to the aria in preparation for our encounter right now, um, I was noticing how the same line is, has variations and how she sings it. So, so that that in what you were saying, I was thinking a little bit about how, yeah, you read it again. Like how that there's this parallel with reading. Like when you're reading a sentence, you can read it otherwise, and then you reread it, and it takes you in a different direction. And that's happening in terms of the notes that she's hitting with the same uh, words and almost the same, you know, like just with the cadences and those things that are right. transforming. So that's great. Okay, so let's stop here. I want to thank you very much for a. Uh, a beautiful and very thought-provoking uh, interview that I'm going to have to listen to many times to think about everything that you've brought to the table. Thank you, Fernanda. It was a great pleasure to, to do it with you. Great. <laughs>